This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello welcome to red box podcast from the times i'm matt chorley bringing you the best of my times radio show monday to thursday 10 till 1 We've been inundated with American listeners, which is excellent news. We've still got a few to go until we found a listener in every US state for our election results uh, programme on Times Radio. So if you are in America and you want to come on as one of our special correspondents uh, trying to find 50 listeners from 50 states, then get in touch with me. Email me matt.chorley at times.radio and we'll hope to get you on the show uh, on election night. Now, there's obviously loads of rolling news around about coronavirus restrictions and we're all going to be trapped indoors again and it's all a bit grim and miserable right across the country and the weather's turned and all of that. So rather than focusing on the, the detailed latest news and all of that sort of thing, what we thought we'd do is take a step back and try to work out why doesn't Britain work? Whether it's Brexit negotiations or track and trace systems, big ideas are announced Deadlines are set and then nothing. They don't quite work or we don't quite meet the date. Does the Prime Minister pull the wrong levers or are the levers just not connected to anything? Well, one man who knows how difficult it is to get Whitehall to work is Francis Maud. Now, Lord Maud, who was a Cabinet Office Minister, basically doing Michael Gove's job in the Cabinet Office during the Coalition. He's now Senior Advisor at uh, Covington and he joins me now. Morning, Francis. Good morning, Matt. Lovely to have you with us on uh, Times Radio. Um, with you. Uh, well, before we get bogged down in the uh, coronavirus and Brexit and all of that, first of all, explain to people who don't know, because, uh, you know, when people say education secretary, what do they think? I know what that means. That means he's in charge of the schools or health secretary is in charge of the hospitals. Michael goes cabinet office minister. What does that mean? What does the cabinet office do? <laughs> well, that's a uh, it's a not an easy question because it changes uh, from government to government. It's not um, it's not a fixed thing. The cabinet office includes the cabinet secretariat that coordinates policy uh, work um, and supports the prime minister and theoretically the the cabinet. But also there are some functions there, and we we enhance this during uh, my time, uh, where. Uh, we said there are cross-cutting functions that work across the whole of government, um, like uh, financial management, uh, procurement, um, running of major projects, uh, property, uh, 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 IT and digital, crucially. Um, And in in most governments, these are sliced up into the silos. They operate a silo model. 
And actually, the result of that is that uh, each of the um, the capability is very is split up. It's a, a little pockets of capability in different departments, but no single hardcore critical mass of capability in one place. And we started to create uh, what we now call the functional model, uh, where these functions are strongly led from the center. And some of that's from the treasury, but most of it is from the cabinet office. And so and is, that's it, a key function. is it your do- job to sort of bang heads together and say, look, you know, if you if you spoke to those people, everything would go a bit more smoothly? Well, there's a bit of that. There's a bit of coordination. I mean, when I was doing it, um, there were kind of two of us on, on, on the job. And one was um, one was Oliver Letwin, who was very much kind of the policy coordinating um, uh, minister who ha- had a huge job in holding together the uh, coalition and negotiating kind of policy compromises and agreements um, in, in the coalition government. Um, my, my main task was around efficiency and cutting costs, um, and there was a huge amount to do. And we ended up um, through the measures we we led, um, uh, we saved uh, cumulatively over fifty two billion pounds from the running costs, basically from the running costs of government. Um, and, you know, this was the time of uh, after the global financial crash when um, the, the uh, taxpayers' money had has famously, uh, as Liam Byrne said, um, had run out. There was no money left. And so we had to save money. And the first place any government should look to save money is uh, in its own running costs, its overheads. Uh, and, and we did a lot of that. Uh, and it meant doing some things which shook the system up and uh, and there was plenty of of vested interest resistance as well as the, all the problems you always have uh, of trying to make things happen in a big complex organization sheer system inertia uh, how uh, is it is it possible to make all those say 52 billion pounds an awful lot of money to take out of the system without making the system less good yeah, no, absolutely. In many cases, we made it work much better. Uh, look at IT and digital. Um, in 2010, the UK had the most expensive government IT in the world. Um, and yet we had car crash after car crash. Um, we set up the government digital service, which is with a strong mandate to oversee um, uh, government IT and digital transformation across the whole of government. Uh, and in 2016, um, the United Nations ranked Britain best in the world for e-government. So you can, uh, uh, you, so those were services that got infinitely better um, by you know, enabling people to do a number of things um, which otherwise would have required telephone calls, showing up in person, uh, using mail, normal post, uh, to do it all digitally, which is how most people want to do things these days. I mean, you know, and, and even 10 years ago, this was uh, already the case. So so we managed to save a lot of money and actually make a lot of things run better. Look at the major projects. I mean, you were talking about how difficult it is to get things done on time. Um, in 2010, the government's major projects, about 200 of them there were, uh, we reckoned, um, with a kind of lifetime cost of probably somewhere between four and five hundred billion pounds, so huge uh, spending, and seventy percent of those were failing on timetable, budget, or quality, and and those three factors are crucial. And if one of even if one of those is missed, then the payback to the public and to the nation 
in terms of the economic and social benefits um, are compromised. And actually, 70% were failing on at least one of those, and, and sometimes more, by um, bringing in what we uh, was called the major projects authority, with the ability to uh, assess how they were going, to spot quickly which ones were going off track. We turned that from a 70% failure rate to a 70% success rate, which is pretty much as good as you'll get <laughs> you'll get anywhere. When you talk about how you sort of try to turn around the, the digital uh, IT project, you know, in every government of every colour has had trouble with IT projects. Everyone always says they're going to get to get grips with it. How, you know, and then we have the last week the story about how the, tr- the track and trace system had fallen over because someone was using an old version of Excel and uploading it and lines of data were going missing. And people were just thinking... In the 21st century, that is mad, isn't it? The British government is using an old version of Excel. Yeah, totally mad, and I have no idea how that can happen. But, I mean, too often, um, I mean, I found civil servants weren't being trained in in the use of basic um, tools. Um, I remember uh, I used to have in, because I had responsibility for, for the civil, ministerial responsibility for the civil service, I used to have in, occasional groups of fast stream graduates uh, into the civil service for, for a sandwich lunch. I remember one of them saying um, that uh, she had opted to do a course in the use of Excel and some of the others had been surprised that she'd uh, decided to do that, opted to do that. My astonishment was that it wasn't absolutely compulsory for all fast stream um, trainees, graduate trainees in the civil service to do that on kind of week two. Um, and to use spreadsheets to be able to do basic financial modeling, um, handle data. They don't all need to be brilliant data scientists, but you do need people um, in the civil service to be able to handle data, not be intimidated by large amounts of data and understand it. And what you do with data is you turn it into information and then knowledge and then insights, and that's how things should work. And, And we were simply not equipping uh, our civil servants to do that. No, but that was shocking. I mean, using an outdated version of, of Excel. I mean, to be using Excel at all, frankly, for something like this is is pretty ropey. So while we've been talking, I've had two messages in. One from David says, the reason we still, the reason we can't get stuff done is that the civil service is on the whole not fit for purpose. He says he's dealt with them and can see they don't have the right skills mix for modern projects. A separate message comes in from someone who's not put the name on it. It doesn't matter how good the civil service is when politicians promise rubbish. So who's... <laughs> I suppose the question is, where does the buck stop? You know, is the civil service up to the job or are they being asked to do stupid things by politicians who haven't thought it through? Well, I think both of those are true, actually. Um, <laughs> and it isn't that civil servants don't have... Um, I, I mean, I always say that, uh, that the civil service is a deeply flawed institution but we have brilliant civil servants. We have some of the best civil servants in the world. It is emphatically not the best civil service in the world. Um, and um, uh, uh, and it does need, you know, the, Michael Gove has, has rightly signaled um, that more change is, is needed. And, and I, completely, uh, I, I completely agree with him. Um, um, but do, you know, do politicians um, um, sometimes commit to st- stupid things? Of course, absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, um, but uh, there's this sort of slightly annoying phrase that's often used about the duty of civil servants to speak truth uh, unto power. Um, and that's normally um, meant to uh, uh, re- refer to 
civil servants giving very clear advice to ministers. And, and too often I have found and, and other ministers have found that that doesn't happen. Um, so, and it's partly because the, the, the civil servants may not have the ability to assess the evidence properly or have access to the right evidence to come back to a minister and say, this is not going to work. And it's also that the the Mandarin civil servants, the kind of policy civil servants, are the ones who tend to get the top jobs uh, in the civil service. Um, and they're the ones who tend to be around the surrounding ministers. And, and the people who do implementation, who may have the technical capability, IT, digital, commercial, financial, um, all of those things, um, uh, tend to be at one remove. Um, and what you want to have is the um, ministers getting advice from not just the sort of policy wonks who who dream up policy and work up policy proposals, but also from the people who are charged with implementing it. So that if they say, as, as they may do, actually, this isn't going to work, but if you do it in this other way, then it's got a better chance of working. Some of these things would be, would be missed. And, and I've often commented that we have what's always seemed to me a bit like a sort of class system in the uh, civil service. You have kind of white collar policy um, civil servants who tend to be in Whitehall and who tend to surround ministers and, as I say, tend to um, get the top jobs. And then you have blue collar people who are who have the technical skills, finance, um, procurement, commercial, uh, IT, uh, property, projects, all of these uh, really important things which are about making a project um, come uh, or a reform program happen. And, and they tend to be below the salt um, and with less access to ministers. Um, and, and that's part of the problem. I mean, you need to, you know, the people who are charged with implementation need to be closely involved in real time uh, with developing the policy and not just handed the policy uh, sort to be sort of carried carefully away from the minister's office um, to, to be implemented, because quite often it's been developed in a way that isn't capable of being implemented successfully. If you like what you're hearing, you can listen to the whole of my Times Radio show. Either listen back on the Times Radio app, or you can listen live Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. We'll have more on the episode after this. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection. Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You mentioned that it's not true that Britain has the best civil service in the world. Is it true that, would you say it's not true that we currently have the best cabinet in the world either? 
um i would say that this um uh, i think there are some great people in this cabinet um and um but it is um i think it's short on experience um and it's uh, short on um people with the weight and um uh and the weight and the gravitas um to uh, bring to bear on the affairs of the nation at a difficult time. <laughs> I mean, it is a really difficult time. I haven't. I mean, I think we sometimes, you know, we 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 are very critical, and I've been as critical as anyone. But we shouldn't underestimate how incredibly hard this is. Nobody really, still after all this time, understands fully understands this disease, how it's working, um, all of the implications. Um, uh, uh, and and you know, so when people say, "Well, uh, things keep changing," there's no certainty. Well, there is no certainty because there isn't any certain knowledge about all of this. There's a lot of uh, uh, emerging now about um, about long COVID. I mean, I had COVID very pretty mildly um, back in six months ago. I still occasionally have days where I where I still feel it. And so, I mean, there's plenty plenty that is still is still being learned about this and its behavior every uh every pandemic behaves differently and and there's still a lot to learn and so you know i think it's it's pretty unreasonable to criticize the government look at what's going on in other countries i mean uh, uh, other countries are tackling very similar problems but it's behaving differently in different places and and different things different responses are appropriate in in different places yeah everyone so, everyone is sort of struggling with it yeah mm-hmm. everybody every, lots of countries are struggling with something that's you know evolving all the time um, talking to francis maud uh, former cabinet minister on uh, times radio one of the things that comes up a lot uh is uh and and particularly during the pandemic is the way that contracts have been handed out we've seen uh some you know we've seen the stories today from sky news and one group uh, boston consulting group are being paid uh, consultants being paid seven thousand pounds a day uh, to run uh, to set up and run the testing system. Last week, it was a thousand consultants from Deloitte uh, earning as much as uh, more than two thousand pounds a day. And this idea of you know the the Tories just giving contracts to their mates in private business. Well, I mean, I, uh, I, it's always difficult to comment on something where you don't know what's really uh, happened uh, there. I think uh, there has been a tendency uh, to use consultants far too readily. Um, and, you know, when we started in 2010, I found, we found that billions a year were being spent on the use of consultants, which was both very expensive, but also quite demoralising for mainstream civil servants. Main, um, clever civil servants, in my experience, like being asked to do difficult things and like learning new skills. Uh, but in too many places, as soon as something difficult came up, um, uh, consultants were hired. I put in place controls over that, and, and we cut the cost of consultants by uh, two thirds. Um, and but I think that's that slipped back a lot um, on some of these contracts, um, uh, procurement of PPE and so on. Look, I mean, I think you have to think back to what was going on, where something completely unexpected came from left field with huge um, implications. Um, and uh, the government needed to move quickly. And certainly the commercial capability in government is is infinitely better than it was in 2010 uh, when we started. It's still you know, not, not, a, not perfect by any means, but it's much better 
than it was. There is much more capability of dealing, of addressing these issues uh, successfully than had been the case. So, I mean, I'm not going to get into it was what what was the particular contracts. I don't know what was in them, but I think we should be much less kind of quick to um, to, to turn to consultants as a matter of course. Um, and, and indeed, I mean, I think the controls that, um, in fact, I know the controls that we put in place have been diluted significantly uh, since uh, 2015. Uh, one of the things you mentioned, uh, you know, planning for the pandemic and PPE and all that sort of thing. It, the uh, emergency planning is one of the things it sits in the in the cabinet office. I mean, there's even the emergency planning college is is sort of run by uh, the the cabinet office. Although I think it's I think it's actually outsourced to Serco, which was further evidence of uh, private companies being bought in. Um, to, when you were in the cabinet office, how to to what extent at all did did the idea of a pandemic uh, like this sort of cross your desk as something that Britain should be prepared for? Well, it did cross my desk, and and it was absolutely there in the. Um, in in the kind of risk register and pretty high up in terms of order of, uh, of of magnitude. And when you're looking at risks, you're looking at two things. You're looking at the impact and the probability. Um, and this was um, very high impact, depending on what it was. I mean, this is not the first pandemic um, we've we faced. You've seen SARS and MERS before this. Um, um, and but but it's the first one with these kind of devastating uh, consequences in terms of the need, in terms of really the, what, what's the difference with this? It's how contagious it is. Um, it's much more contagious than most of these other ones, which means that you have to um, have much more isolation, which has then this dramatic and horrendous economic impact on people's jobs and livelihoods. Um, so, I mean, it is, uh, the impact is much greater, very much at the kind of top end of, of um, uh, impact, the, the scale of impact. The likelihood of something like that happening was not that high, but it was there. But, but every potential um, pandemic has different um, consequences and needs different kinds of measures to respond to it. And um, so you can't, you know, could preparations have been better? Yes, I'm sure. Um, and not just here, but in, in most places. Would it have been possible to be completely prepared? Absolutely not. Obviously, uh, during your time in government, the, the, there was a big overhaul of, of health uh, in general. There was the, the Health and Social Care Act, which was, you know, quite a contentious. Uh, lots of battles fought over that at the time. It created Public Health England, which is coming for a lot of criticism uh, for its its early response and since and its ability or not to run a track and trace system, and that sort of thing. Was it a mistake creating Public Health England in the way that it, it was? Well, I think... Um... I think in reality, the health reforms um, were were not brilliantly successful. They looked um, they looked more radical and they were much more politically controversial than than they needed to be for the benefit they delivered. Um, But it did create it created um, not just Public Health England, but a kind of it spawned this huge kind of range of of health quangos uh, with some overlap between them complicated to navigate uh, and with capability being dispersed in in, in different places. Um, and um, I think something much simpler um, would be would have been better and, and would be better. 
better. But I think one of the things that you have to address is not just the structure and the institutions in the health service, but you need to address the culture. Uh, and, and in my experience, the culture of the NHS establishment, and I'm not talking about the amazing people at the front line in the health service um, who, who are superb, um, is it is very inward looking. It's uh, quite insecure about um, engaging people from outside and, and not very confident about engaging people from outside, whether it's in academia or business or, or, or wherever. Um, and I think that's been, been part of the problem, this kind of assumption, oh, we can do it all ourselves yeah. in-house. Well, that has proved not to be the case. Do you think the, the Britain's response to the pandemic would have been more successful had it not been for those health reforms, which, like you said, spawned a, this huge range of sort of slightly overlapping quangos? It wasn't totally clear early on who was really supposed to be responding to it. <laughs> Um, I, I'm, I'm, I, I don't know, but I think the biggest problem, as I say, was not the, was not the structure. Um, it was um, it was the the, the culture. Yeah. Um, and um, you know, I mean, and just as when we were reforming the way central government works, and, and the reforms I oversaw didn't or barely touch the the NHS. Um, you know, you, we found there was a shortage of technical capability. Um, and you need that, you, and you need a hardcore, critical mass of, of top-end technical capability, um, and you're not going to get that if it's dispersed um, among a load of different uh, silos. Um, I mean, one of the things we did in the um, uh, coalition government was to promote a programme we called Public Service Mutuals, where we encouraged groups of public sector workers to... Uh, spin themselves out. Into, I, I, I well remember you. I think you sent me to one once in Swindon. I went to look at for, <laughs> a long time ago for a feature for the for the paper I was working on it at the time. Uh, just because yeah, I'm, I, I'm slightly conscious of the time, I need to ask you about yeah. Brexit, obviously as well. Another another sort of rolling series of missed dates and promises not quite fulfilled. You were you were minister for Europe um, for Mar uh, uh, way back in um, 1989 for Margaret Thatcher. Indeed. So you, you have experience of negotiating with Europe. Are, are we are we world? You know, we're clearly not world beaters when it comes to the civil service. Are we world beaters when it comes to international negotiations? Well, I mean, we're not bad at it at all, and and um, uh, I think this round of negotiations um, after the uh, transition period, after the formal Brexit happened. Um, um, has been much more has been run much better than than previously, um, and um, um, I think um, uh, th various mistakes were made in in the uh, withdrawal uh, agreement negotiations, where I think Theresa May committed to some very hardline um, uh, ground rules to begin with, no internal market, etc., which was I think a mistake. Um, uh, and that kind of really hamstrung the negotiators after that. Uh, and I think um, uh, we were outplayed uh, ta tactically by the EU negotiators at pretty much uh, every stage, um, particularly on the kind of sequencing of, of the negotiation. This one has been much better. Um, uh, but, you know, where we are is we're, we're coming up against the clock. Um, uh, it absolutely remains the case that it's um, much more likely than not that there will be a deal, but it's not certain. I mean, the mutual 
self-interest in in having a deal at a time when uh, our economy is not only here and but and, and not only in the EU but actually everywhere are incredibly fragile and and getting more so because of the second wave of covid uh, the mutual self-interest in not doing something that will make it even worse is very considerable uh, and and so you know i think the idea that this will um this could be allowed to crater um because the french insist on no changes whatsoever to the arrangements for fisheries uh, is extraordinary to me uh, and i think it's extraordinary to um most of the eu 27 um who see who i mean i'm sure they're sympathetic with president macron and and the uh, vigor and um um resilience of the um uh, of the fishery industry in in france but you know you it it has been totally clear from the outset that you could not have brexit happen and have no change at all to the arrangements for fisheries totally um must have been understood from day one yeah yeah it does seem to be the the the, the big sticking point just before i let you go then final thing if boris johnson uh, called you up and said that francis you've been around whitehall for a long time i keep pulling levers and they don't appear to be attached to anything or things aren't, <laughs> aren't aren't happening how how can the prime minister suppose the most powerful man in the country get things done uh, it's a perennial problem um the levers don't uh, don't always connect. Sometimes you, you're pulling a lever and they're not connected to the machinery. Uh, look, I mean, Margaret Thatcher was a was a pretty uh, successful prime minister in getting things done, and it operated. She operated with effectively not much more than a dozen people um, in Number Ten, half a dozen in the private office, half a dozen in the policy unit, um, and you just have to focus relentlessly on what are the things that um, you uh, particularly. What, what are the central and strategic things to get on with? And then make sure you've got competent, capable, experienced ministers in the departments and you keep abreast of what they're doing and you stay on top of it, but you're not trying to run it all from the centre. You can't possibly, no, no government can possibly work like that. Uh, well, it's really good to speak to you um, and to talk through how, if Britain isn't working, but I think we at least know slightly more now why. So it's, it's really good to speak to you. Francis Maud, now Lord Maud, uh, former Cabinet Office Minister in the Coalition and now a Senior Advisor at Covington. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box podcast. Uh, you can now listen back to my whole show on the Times Radio app, where you can also now listen to all of the Times podcasts, including Red Box 2. Make sure you subscribe and review at the Red Box podcast wherever you listen. But for now, for me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.